Now today is the third Sunday of Lent. And as such, we're going to continue our series talking about some of these things that we might be better off letting go of. And this week we're tackling a really big one, and that is superiority. So when we were first coming up with this series, this was the topic that really, really jumped out to me. Now, I know some people would probably disagree with me, but to me, I personally think that one of the, if not the biggest issues or problems in the church in America, if not the entire Western church right now, is this idea of superiority. A large portion of people who are outside of the church, and honestly, even a lot of people who are within the church, see the church see Christians as coming off as acting and looking and feeling self-superior, as coming off as overly sanctimonious. I think far too often the church comes off looking more like a group of people trying to do good, trying to reflect Jesus, and more often than not looks like the mean girls. I think in, in the eyes of a large portion of people, we're coming off as not nice. We're coming off as judgmental. And so it's, I think personally, I think it's no wonder the church in America is shrinking because really no one wants to be friends with the mean girls. Now, the common response from the church when talking about this issue is, well, we have the right answer. We have and know that the salvation of Christ is the answer. And those who keep sinning and those who don't accept Jesus are only depriving themselves of this amazing gift. And yes, that is 100% true. I would not argue with that. But sometimes I think the right answer, framed or delivered in the wrong way, might still be the wrong answer in that moment. Here's an example. We have an amazing number of wonderful teachers as part of the River Tree family. Now, how would some of you handle a situation like this? Say you have a student who is really struggling to understand a concept or who just doesn't seem to want to learn a particular topic or didn't seem interested in it. How would you try, how would you address this situation? Well, I think a large number of you would say you would really try to work with them. You might try to present the material in a different way, see if that helps. You might try to maybe get at the underlying root cause of the struggle. Maybe something's going on at home that's distracting them. You know, maybe there's just some outside force that's taking away their attention, that's taking away, that's making this feel less important, right? You would work with them, try to figure out, try to help them you're probably not going to want to make them feel bad for not learning, right? You're probably not going to make fun of them. Come on, dummy. How are you not getting this? Why aren't you listening to me? I'm the teacher. I know what I'm talking about. I am so much smarter than you. And if you would only listen to what I say, then maybe you could be smart too. I'm going to just go out on a limb and guess that that's probably not going to be a very effective teaching method, right? 
But yet that seems to be one that the church has used historically on a regular basis. Here's just one example of what I mean and one that I've seen a lot in the past. Now, I promise this will not devolve into angry rants with Jesse all morning. After this one, we'll pull up and we'll get back, but I, I, I think it's important to just give an example of what I mean. Now, this is something that has long frustrated me, and I know in, because of conversations I've had with other people, has frustrated a lot of other people, especially outside the church. And that is people who use pseudo swear words or substitute swear words and then lord that fact over people or who look down upon someone who swears. So here's what I mean. Uh, a person who uses words like shoot, darn it, frick on a regular basis and then gets very, very offended when someone, say, smashes their thumb with a hammer and drops an F-bomb because it hurts so much. Do you see how this can maybe cause some disconnect? Now, whether intended or not, this comes off as creating a very false sense of superiority. This is coming off as the person saying, well, I technically do not swear. I have changed a single letter in this word, and therefore I can still glean the benefits of it, the dopamine rush from swearing, but I can now judge you for swearing. I can now judge you for not changing that single letter. Do you see how this could cause some friction? Do you see how this potentially is putting up false walls? Now, two things I do not want you to hear out of this example. I am not saying you have a green light to swear as much as you want. So any of our students listening, please do not go swear at your parents and then try to say, Pastor Jesse said it was okay. No, I, I do not want to deal with that blowback. That is not what I'm saying. And neither am I saying that using these pseudo swear words, darn it, are necessarily a bad thing, right? But what I'm saying is creating these technical loopholes to justify your actions, to justify doing the things you want to do while also looking down, while also judging someone else who doesn't follow that train of thought, who isn't jumping through the same loopholes you are, is honestly probably doing more harm than good. That's just kind of one quick, relatively small example, but one that for some reason has bothered me for quite a while. Right, I'm gonna get off my soapbox now. Soapbox time is over. So why don't we turn to Jesus? See what Jesus kind of shows an example of this. Let's look at a few examples of Jesus letting go of superiority. Now the first one comes from John chapter four. Now for those of you with a very good memory, you will recognize this passage as the famous woman at the well passage. And you will recall that we talked about this one just a few short months ago. So because of that, I'm not going to hit upon a lot of those same points. But I do want to highlight a couple interesting things. First, I want to look at the setting of the story. The, the physical location the story takes place in. So look with me at verse 5. John chapter 4, starting in verse 5. So he came to the city of Samaria, called Sakar near the parcel of ground that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. 
and Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being warned, <clears throat> excuse me, being weaned, wearied, I'm struggling to read right now, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the wall, and it was about the sixth hour. Okay, so Jesus is sitting at the well of Jacob by himself around noon. So just keep that, keep that in your head. We're going to come back to it. That's going to be important here in a second. Now, as the story progresses, if you recall, a Samaritan woman comes to the well. Jesus asks if he can have a drink. They have a conversation. She asks some questions. They go back and forth a little bit, during which time Jesus makes reference and asks about the woman's husband. To which the woman responds in verse 17, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said well, I have no husband. For you have five husbands, and the one whom you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. Alright, let's put this passage together a little bit. Jesus is talking to a woman who currently is in a relationship with six different people. That alone, in this time period, and a lot of this is going to be framed within the context of this time period, you know, first century, that alone would have been enough to destroy the reputation of a religious teacher, of a rabbi. But, wait, there's another big, big factor of this conversation. That alone would have destroyed reputations, would have broken down, would have destroyed that superiority. But there's one more big thing at play here. There is a running trope throughout the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament, of couples meeting and getting married at a well. You might think of it as the well was kind of the match.com of the time period. We have a number of examples of this throughout Scripture. Isaac and Rebekah meet and fall in love with a well. Jacob and Rachel, same thing. Moses and Zephora, same thing. All of these stories follow a very set pattern. There are six steps in this pattern. The first one is someone journeys to the well from another country. That's step one. Step two, the man encounters a woman at the well. Step three, water is drawn from the well. One party asks the other party to draw them water. Four, the woman leaves to tell others about this visitor. Support. Step five, the visitor stays with the woman's family. And then step six, the two were married. Okay. Where did verse five say that this setting is, that Jesus is right now? Oh, that's right, he's at a well. And not just that, he is at the well of Jacob. The well that, according to folk, according to popular culture, according to oral traditions, was the very well where Jacob met Rachel. The place that really, one of the places that started this trope and made this pattern famous. And not only that, if you look at the six steps of the pattern, as the story progresses, Jesus and the woman hit almost every single one of them. 
they hit steps one, two, three, and four. Now that's a whole other sermon idea we could talk about, how this is a trope that Jesus is shifting to highlight new things, to show new metaphors. It, it's, it's, it's really cool. But think about it in the context of the location, of the time, to someone seeing this, even to someone initially reading this. So add this trope to what we talked about before, the fact that this woman has been in a relationship and is currently in a relationship with six different people. And you have Jesus really sitting on a powder keg, a massive explosion of controversy. For someone trying to maintain a level of superiority, for someone worried about distancing themselves, looking down upon someone, creating this separation from someone, this is a, doesn't seem like a great move, right? If you want to separate yourself from someone, if you want to act above them, Jesus is really basically doing everything to not do that. And this is not an isolated incident. This isn't a one-time thing. Jesus has a pattern of doing this. So if you have your Bibles, flip back to Mark 2, leave your thumb or a tab open right here at the Woman of the Well story, because we're going to come back to it in a second. But turn, turn with me to Mark 2. Here we will read about Jesus's call of the disciple Levi and the kind of follow-up party that happened afterwards. I'm going to start reading in verse 13. So this is Mark 2, verse 13. And he went out again to by the seashore. And all the multitude were coming to him, and he was teaching them. As he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Altheus, sitting in his tax office. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as it came about that he was reclining, Jesus was reclining at the table in his house, and many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and the disciples. For there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes and the Pharisees saw that Jesus was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they began to say to his disciples, Psst, why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? In hearing this, Jesus said to them, It's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So by calling a tax collector one of the most hated occupations of the day into his inner circle, Jesus is breaking down walls of superiority. Merely by sitting and eating and even being around sinners, Jesus is sloughing off the idea of superiority. And he's doing this really as opposed to the bulk of the other religious leaders at the time. Because look how they respond. Look how they react to seeing Jesus do this. They're shocked. Why is he eating with those people? That kind of attitude doesn't really seem like the attitude of someone that is genuinely concerned with helping, with reaching out to someone else. Does it? 
it feels more like the attitude and the demeanor of someone concerned with looking important, with someone looking righteous. Now, let's flip back to Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. This passage in Mark shows us that this is a pattern, that this is something that Jesus does. This is a ministry strategy that Jesus employs. So, how does this play out? How does the woman at the well story end? Well, as their conversation closes, Jesus and the woman part ways. The woman goes down into town and basically tells anyone who will listen what's just happened. We re and from there, we read that from that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him, Jesus, because of the word of the woman who testified. He told me all of the things I have done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed with them for two days. And many more believed because of his word. So because Jesus let go of his superiority, not only did the Samaritan woman come to believe, our central character of the story, but also many others did as well. Now, do you think the story would have had quite the same ending had Jesus approached the situation, this woman, this story, holding tightly to a sense of superiority? Had Jesus been condescending or haughty to the woman? Do you think things would have worked out quite the same way? I'm gonna guess probably not. You know, had Jesus been rude to the woman, whatever, do you think she would have run back to the town and excitedly told everyone, hey, hey, you have to come see this guy. He was super rude to me. He made me feel terrible. He did this and this. Uh, probably not, right? I'm gonna assume that wouldn't have happened. Now, if there had ever been anyone who has ever lived who could legitimately get away with feeling and acting superior, it, it's Jesus, right? He, he was God. He was God incarnate. But he didn't lord the superiority over people. He didn't make them feel apprehensive about talking to him. He didn't make them feel bad about their situation. He reached out. He tried to connect, tried to form relationships, keeping bridges open, not putting up false walls to prevent people from relating. So what does it say about us when we feel or act superior to others? When we think we are so much better than this person, because we don't do this or that. Or we gossip about someone. Did you see who he was having coffee with? Did you see what she was wearing? In a way, we're putting ourselves above Jesus when we do that. If Jesus, who has every legitimate reason to feel superior, let's go of his superiority, doesn't flaunt that over people, then I think it's pretty clear we shouldn't either.
we shouldn't feel superior. We should let go of superiority as well. Now, there, there is a line to be walked in this as well. This is not a free pass to do whatever you want, right? I feel like there's often that people use the fact, well, Jesus hung out with sinners, so I, I can do whatever I want, right? No, no, that, that is not the, the point of this. What the idea behind this is, is not letting our own feeling of righteousness, our own feeling of righteous superiority, get in the way of the gospel. God doesn't care a single bit about any of the artificial lines we draw around ourselves to make ourselves feel superior, to make ourselves feel separate or better than anyone outside of those lines. Because in the eyes of God, we're all equal because we're all sinners. And all of us are only saved through grace. Not a single one of us is good enough to earn salvation for ourselves. So thinking you're better than someone else, thinking you're su superior to someone else, it is really just lying to yourself. If we can let go of our status symbols, of our feeling of self-importance, and of our judgmental attitudes, then we can follow Jesus more completely. And then we can model Jesus's attitude more fully. And I truly believe that will lead us to walking Jesus's call all the more faithfully. Join me as we pray. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for this time you've given us to come together. And we thank you that you are a God who modeled how we should interact, who modeled how we should be in our everyday lives. And we just, first of all, we humbly ask for forgiveness for the times where we have lorded our superiority, our perceived superiority, where we have thought ourselves better than people around us. Lord, we humbly ask for forgiveness for those times. And Lord, we ask that you would work in our hearts, just reminding us that we are all sinners, not one better than the other. And we just ask that you could give us that servant's heart. Give us the heart of Jesus, who humbled himself, who did not let his station get in the way of, of his mission, which was to save us, which was to let everyone know of this gift of salvation. And so, Lord, we ask that we can follow suit, that we would not let artificial lines of superiority, artificial lines of separation keep us from fulfilling the gospel mission, from loving the people around us, from loving our community, and from sharing your love with them. Lord, we ask all of this in your precious name. We ask that you would follow us and bless us. Amen.